just want to remind you where we've been. We looked at the nature of God's gracious covenant promises. That, it, that is, He is a relational God. He is a present God. And He is a God who is faithful to His covenant. Faithful to what He promised. That's what we looked at last week. And we started to unfold this historical recounting in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is looking back at what God has already done in the life of Israel as uh, the people of God are now sitting in the plains of Moab looking over into the promised land uh, west of the river Jordan. They're, they're, They're preparing themselves to enter the promised land. And in this time, Moses is recounting what the Lord has done. This is where we've been, he's saying. And so, with that, I want to turn to the text, and um, I am going to just add a few verses that we read last week to help give us context. Uh, I'll be reading starting in verse 9. It's not there in your bulletin, uh, but it's just uh, a few uh, extra verses to give us the context, and I'll be reading uh, to verse 46. So, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 to 46. It's a long section, so bear with me. At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. That was the words of Moses. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear you bear by myself the weight and burden of you in your strife? Choose for yourself wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, The thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, Hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is within, who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I had said to you, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us, and bring us word again of the way by which we must go, and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshel and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the son of the Anakim there. 
Then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen where you have seen how the Lord the God your God has carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to see, in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord." Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, You shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea." Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in the hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in the seer as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a lot here. Open our hearts to see the glory of Christ and to see you as our great judge and king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a long passage. I, I realize it's a lot, of, a lot of words, so I'll try to kind of synthesize what, what's going on in the text. Um, but to begin, I just want to make a statement. Being a judge... And I'm, I'm not uh, formally a judge in any sense, and so this is a bit of a conjecture, but I think, it's, I think it's fair to say. Being a judge might be the most weighty and powerful position a human can hold. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a king or a president or something like that, but it's at least one of, if not the, uh, most powerful position a human can hold. A judge's judgment can determine the course and trajectory of people's lives. Right? Lives and property hang in the balance of the men and women who sit in judgment. And I, I realize that there's juries, but there's still always a judge, right? 
judges hold extraordinary powers. I remember sitting with a husband and wife in a local uh, magistrate's courtroom in Pittsburgh over the course of about six months. We had to keep going back to the the courtroom. And this this couple had issues with their property and they just wanted me there as a sort of an advocate. And I just remember this sense of everything is in the balance of what this man says. This, This magistrate... It's all up to him what happens to this, these poor people's life, their, their, their property. They hold an extraordinary power. Well, our text begins with the appointment of judges who were charged to judge justly. But then our text ends with the judgment of God against the people of God. Do you see that? It begins with this appointment stuff about the judges, and then ends with the judgment of God against the people of God. And this morning, I want us to think about the nature of righteous or just judgment. In this text, we'll see both faulty and righteous judgment. We'll see both of those things. And I want us to contemplate what, what precipitates, what, what, what leads to these two types of judgment, faulty or unjust or injust justice or injustices, um, and what constitutes righteous judgment. In the end, my hope is that together we will recognize and rejoice in this fact, this reality, the Lord is our righteous judge. Rejoice in that. Not just be trembling and awe. I think that's part of it. But rejoice in that. Come to that. So we'll look at this in three parts. First, the blessing of just judgment. Second, the curse of unjust judgment. And finally, the Lord, our righteous judge. Those three points. So I began in verse 9 this morning because I wanted to highlight a little bit of context. When the people of God came out of Egypt, they were no longer just a family of Jacob's sons, right, in their families. When they came out of Egypt, they were a host. Not only that were they the host of Abraham, but they, they had a host of Egyptians who came out with them. You can go back and read that account. So they were, there were myriads of them. And Moses highlights that reality. And it was too much for Moses to sit in judgment for the whole nation of Israel. And so we have this account here. It's really curious. Why does Moses highlight this particular thing? There was lots that went on uh, in their wanderings in the desert. And he highlights the appointment of judges. He could have highlighted all sorts of things. But that's what he points out. Why? What's going on? It seems like kind of a minor thing. It's just a technicality. Moses couldn't do it. He needed some help. He appointed his father-in-law, tells him to appoint someone. But here, in our text in Deuteronomy, he highlights it. Why? I think there are two reasons. First, to highlight how God has been faithful to his promise to make Israel into a great nation. That's the first reason. Right? We looked at that last week, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But the point was, God has been faithful to His promise. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Well, here they were, coming out of Egypt, as numerous as the stars in the sky. That was, that was the theme. So that was one reason why, why it's highlighted here in the text. But there's a second reason. And that is to highlight the need, the necessity of righteous judgment. Moses couldn't do it alone. And just judgment was an essential aspect for righteous living. 
for the people of God. We see this emphasized in verses 16 to 18 here where Moses describes the roles of the judges. In verse 16, they were to judge righteously, not just between brothers, but also cases involving aliens in their midst. It was sort of to be an all-encompassing judgment, righteous judgment, not just for the insider, but for the outsider, for those that have come in, the alien in their midst. In verse 17, they're charged not to be partial, but to hear small and great cases alike. There's a sense of, of judgment for all, for the least, from the least to the greatest. And they're not to be intimidated either, right? By power and privilege and prestige. And then finally, in verse 17, he reminds them that righteous judgment is ultimately grounded in the judgment of God. The true judge and final judge. So when things went were too hard for those lower judges, they brought it up the, you know, it's like the uh, Court of Appeals, right? Moses is the final appeal, the Supreme Court, but really God is the one who's the supreme judge overall. And they're to bring those things to God's representative, to Moses. I'm going to make a, a claim, and I think it's, again, kind of similar to my other claim. Uh, I think it's true. You can argue with me if you want. But I think imbued in humanity, imbued in all of us, is a sense of justice. And we see that longing for justice everywhere we look, don't we? And we see it even at the very youngest in our children. Um, one of the earliest phrases my kids have learned, and I'm not really sure where they learned it, but all kids learn it, uh, is that's not fair. Right? right? That's, the, that's not fair. In fact, being a parent is much like being a judge. Uh, you're often making judgment in cases between kids, really all the time. <laughs> You hear that argument starting to rise in the background. You walk in, what's going on here? And you get the, the two sides, the three sides, however many sides there are in the argument. And you're trying to make just judgments. And anyone who has tried a case between kids knows how impossible it is to make wise judgments. Because you're like, I don't know what happened here. I'm just taking it away. And then everyone cries it's not fair. But the point is that we all long for justice. Even if that justice is according to our own twisted sense of right and wrong, our own twisted morality, right? We all long for justice. Maybe it's according to our own views, but we all long for it. All people in all places at all times, cry for justice. But what is true justice like? And this is where humanity really stumbles. What's, what's true justice look like? When I make judgments between my kids, often one or possibly all three feel as though an injustice has been done and that I have not been fair in my judgment. And to be honest, they're probably right. I, I, I mean, at least sometimes. I try to make fair judgments. I try to make judgments according to what I understand and to make wise judgments. But oftentimes, I, I fail. 
And here in the earliest stages of the people of God, as they're being constituted into a nation, Moses appoints judges to judge not according to their whims or their own sense of right and wrong, but to judge according to that which does not fail, according to the law. The Word of God. In fact, Jethro instructed him in this way. Hear these words of Jethro from from Exodus chapter 18. Remember, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. He says, Now obey my voice, son, Moses. I'll give you advice, and God be with you. (laughs) You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hated bribe, And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Those were Jethro's words of instruction as far as judgment was concerned. See, all of Moses' judgment is under God, before God, and according to God's word. And all those men appointed to judge with Moses and Moses himself were to do what? They were to fear the Lord. Remember Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom is the grounds for just judgment. Wisdom from the Lord is the way in which you take the truths of God's Word and apply it in situation. You see, it's not, it is only insofar as our judgments align with God that true justice is meted out. This is why the psalmist declares over and over again throughout the psalms, Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. God, the ultimate judge. Or in Psalm 36, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save. And this is the blessing, that we are not left to our own devices to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is good, what is just. God has blessed us with His Word. He Himself is wisdom and righteousness and justice. And we enjoy the blessing of God as we live under that righteous judgment. Well, there's true blessing in the just judgment of God throughout His Word, but the unnerving truth is this, that even when we're equipped with God's Word, we make unjust judgments. Isn't that a bit unnerving? Even though we have what is true, right, and good, we make unjust judgments. And this is my, my second point, the curse of unjust judgments. The text quickly shifts uh, course to the account of the first time the people of God approached the land. They're at Kadesh Barnea, south of Israel. So they're looking into the promised land and there is a great people there. The Canaanites in particular, right in front of them are the Amorites. And there's powerful cities fortified. The land was before them. But it wasn't unoccupied. They were strong people, strong nation. In fact, we have the Amorites, and, and in, a, in a 
in a week or so, we're going to address some pretty challenging stuff with regard to the reason God judged the Canaanite people and how he used Israel as his instrument uh, of judgment. Uh, so I'm going to set that idea aside. So if you can do that, that'd be good. Just sort of set it aside in your mind. Okay, we're going to come back to what the Lord is doing to the Canaanites. Um, but I want us to see this. God has promised to deliver this land into their hands, these people into their hands. And he says it in verse 20 here. He says, And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving you. It's a promise, right? Part of the promise of the blessing of the land. Now, the Israelites are a bit uncertain at this point, aren't they? They, they say, well, okay, it's an unknown land. Moses, why don't we send out some people to check out the land? We'll send out one from every tribe, 12 spies, to go out into the land. And if you remember the story from uh, the book of Numbers, they, they, they send out the 12 tribes, they come back, they have all this, this bounty, the, the grapes, and, and, and they say, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. And two... Of those people said, the Lord is going to give this into our hands. Let's go, Joshua and Caleb. That was, the, that was the promise. They reported what they saw. Interestingly, Moses here in Deuteronomy says that. But he doesn't point out what the other ten said. Well, he does a little later on. He uses it as the words uh, uh, in verses 27 to 29, what the other spies have said. But the, the thing that he says is that this land is good. Not only that, but the Lord is going to deliver this land into your hands. Caleb made right judgment. But the rest of the spies and the rest of Israel made wrong Judgment. They also saw the land. They saw, it was, saw that it was flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord had said. And they also saw the cities and the peoples, but they did not see God or the power of God. In fact, the text says in verse 27, You murmured in your tents and you said, Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Right now... As you probably are aware, there's all sorts of political turmoil. I feel like there always is political turmoil, but it seems high right now. And there's wrangling going on on whether or not you can indict the President of the United States. I have nothing to say about that. I know nothing about it, but that is a question that is flowing around the political talking heads. And what I want us to see here is, in our text, the people of God had no problem not indicting Moses but indicting God Himself. They made a judgment against Him. And not just any small judgment. Notice how Moses pleads with the people. He reminds them of all, everything the Lord has done for them. In verses 29-33, The Lord your God who goes before you will Himself fight for you just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you've seen the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord our God, who went before you in the way 
to seek you out a place to pitch your tent and fire by night and the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Moses is like... Have you not seen how the Lord has brought you out of Egypt, how He's led you through the wilderness, how He's provided for all your needs, and now you come to the land which He's given you, and you say, He hates you? That He's just brought you here to destroy you? Have you not seen how He's carried you like a father carries his son? They said of this covenant Lord... that He hated them, had brought them to the land to trifle with them, to destroy them. Friends, this was a grave injustice against the God of heaven and earth. And so the Lord in turn judged them. He said that they, they would not be allowed to enter the promised land, of course, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, who had judged rightly. And in judgment against them, he promised to carry their children, right? So he said, I carried you all this way, and now you are going to have to turn back, but I'm going to carry your children into the land. The ones who've yet to make wicked judgments themselves. And to make matters worse, when they realized that they had sinned, they compounded it with presumptuousness, with presumption, there's the word, still trying to make judgments themselves. Oh, no, Lord, I didn't realize that we, we made such a terrible move. We'll go up and fight. <laughs> no, I'm not with you. Don't go up and fight. And again, they rejected the judgment of the Lord and they turned to their own detriment to fight. I think it's easy for us to get on the case of Israel. How could they fail to see God's grace and power? After all they'd been through, how could they continue to grumble and complain and doubt the goodness of the Lord God? How could they make such poor judgments? We can get on Israel's case, can't we? It's easy. But the truth is, we do this all the time. You see, our, I think our biggest problem, our biggest problem is not trusting that God is powerful. But our biggest problem is trusting that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. This is, expresses itself in our lives all the time. Sometimes we will express it in complaint against God. If you really loved me, have you ever used that with God? If you really loved me, then you wouldn't do this. Or you would allow me to do this. But more often than our words, it's our actions. Right? When we do what we want, rather than what God calls us to, what we're doing is we're internally telling ourselves, well, if God really loves me, then He would want me to do this, or He wouldn't make me do that, and I'm going to do what I want to do. The underlying assumption is, I am a better judge than God. That's what disobedience is. It's, it's saying, the way you've set forward, I judge to be wrong, and I'm going to go this way instead. Friends, you know the folly of that. You know the destruction that awaits in making yourself the ultimate judge of right and wrong. I, I began by arguing that the whole world cries for justice. Why? 
Because ultimately the justice of mankind fails. Our human attempts at justice fail. We see this in our own lives. We have justice meters that go off every time someone cuts us off or jumps the line or takes the last of something. But then given the opportunity, we do the same exact thing. In other words, we don't even live up to our own ideals of justice. We break our own laws. We don't love how we want to be loved, do we? We always complain that we're not loved right, but then when the reality is we don't love others as we ought. We don't treat others with the respect we ourselves want. Do you see how our justice is all messed up? Because we, we hold others' feet to the flame and allow ourselves free reign. That's the nature of our sin. There's a justice deficit. And the consequences are felt on every level of life, from sibling rivalry all the way up to international politics and war. Where is justice? Here's the thing. The Lord God, as the just judge, will in the end bring about His justice. And this brings me to my conclusion. The Lord is our righteous judge. We've noted that judgment that, brought, that God brought against the generation of Israelites for their failure uh, to judge the situation the Lord had set before them rightly. Uh, he had just told them, okay, I'm going to set you up as judges. You're going to judge things. You're going to ju- judge uh, issues between people. Uh, and you're going to go out into the land and I want you to judge rightly that I am leading you into this land. And they came back and they judged unjustly. They indicted the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. The Lord definitely justly judges their rebellion. But His justice is marked by grace and mercy. One punishment in the parental judge's toolbox is to turn the car around. Have you ever threatened that? I'm not, I don't know that I've ever threatened it. Definitely threatened to pull the car over. And maybe have on occasion done that as well. But you, you know, you've, you, it's sort of the classic. I'm going to turn this car around if you kids don't stop. Blah, whatever. Here's the thing. No one ever turns the car around, do they? I don't know anybody. Is it like you're, you're like two-thirds of the way to your destination and the parent's going to turn around? Maybe it's happened. Maybe you can attest to that. But it's kind of like the nuclear option. Um, but here, the Lord turns the car around in that sense. It's hard to fathom the disappointment for the people of God. Here they were uh, on the precipice of this promised land and they had just gone through what was described in our text as a great and terrible wilderness. It was a desert. And here they were going to go back into that desert not for a short period but for 40 years and they would die in the desert. At least the generation. The Lord sends them back. And I think at this point we have to recognize the seriousness of their rebellion. 
That rejecting God, rejecting His Word, His promises, calling Him hateful, not seeing Him for who He is, is grounds for just judgment. Friends, every sin deserves what? This is a catechism. This is a catechism, I guess. Every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. If you really believe in justice, you hold on to this reality that, that, that sin, injustice, unrighteousness has to be dealt with. There is no justice if a wrong is not righted. Our God is a righteous God, a holy God. He made us. We're His. And our rejection of Him is no little thing. Yet our God is not just a God of justice. But He is also a God of mercy and grace. How do we see mercy and grace in the text? He sees mercy and grace in His preservation of the people. That He preserves them through their time in the wilderness, and He preserves their children, and He leads those children. He's on the precipice, and He leads those children into the promised land. He carried them as a father carries a child, and He'll carry them home. Of course, this begs the question, how can God be merciful if, as you say, Rob, sin deserves the wrath and curse of God? How does God remain faithful to His promises while at the same time retain His justice and His righteousness, His holiness? How do those things combine? How does He resolve that conundrum? Well, in order to carry these children into the land of promise, He had to judge His own child. Not for any injustices on the part of His only begotten Son. No, His his only begotten Son was faithful. He was the one who faithfully trusted the Lord and His judgments and did all that the Lord had commanded to Him. Even as He stood on the precipice of the cross and said, My God, if there's any other way that this can be, make it be, but Lord, Your will be done. You holy righteous. He went to the cross crucified. There, justice was meted out. Of course, the land was also just a picture of glory. Moses and that generation of trusting Israelites who wandered 40 long years, you know, the ones who had faith did enter the promised land. They didn't enter that physical land, but they entered the promised land on account of what Christ had done for them. They didn't get the earthly version. They got a far better version. Friends, we have to confess that we are broken, full of injustice in our own lives, that we treat others unjustly, that we treat God unjustly, and that God, the just and righteous Holy One, preserves us and carries us as His children into the promised land despite despite our injustice 
despite our repudiation of His goodness and righteousness, He carries us in His arms even as His Son was crucified for us. What a glorious thought, the justice and mercy meeting in the person of Jesus Christ, and we can rejoice and give thanks. The God of justice has paid the penalty for our sin, for our lack of justice, and He has justly judged sin, broken it. And that Christ Himself broke the power and penalty of sin. He broke death and rose again and has bringing us home to that promised land, carrying us all the way there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we confess to You that uh, we need Your righteous judgments. We need Your Word to direct and guide us. And Lord, we also confess to You that we regularly fail to trust your righteous judgments, that we indict you, that we turn from you, that we try to make our own justice, our own pathway, and even that we fail to obey. And yet, Lord, in your infinite wisdom, you sent forward your only Son to face justice that we deserved. We thank you that through him, We have access into the land of promise. Thank you for all these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.